0: Welcome to Brains, a podcast exploring the inner workings of our brains and how film and television portray them. Hosted by me, film and television editor Sarah Taylor,
1: and by me, writer-director Heather Taylor. Before we begin, we want to acknowledge the lands from which we recorded this podcast and from where you are listening are part of territories that have long served as a gathering place for diverse Indigenous peoples, and we are thankful as guests on this land to be able to live, work, and gather here together. We continue to learn about the history that came before us and encourage you to do the same.
0: On today's episode, we dive into the world of autism with Ava Zaulin-Rigelhaut, Rigelhout, is a writer, actress, and advocate of diversity, autism, and disability representation in entertainment.
1: We discussed how Ava got her autism diagnosis and what it meant for her, what stigmas she and other autistics often face, and how she would like to create inclusive autism representation on and off screen. We also talked about the representation of autism in television shows such as As We See It and Everything's Gonna Be Okay.
0: A quick reminder to our listeners that this interview should not be taken as medical advice, and it is for informational purposes only, because everyone's brain is different. Please consult your healthcare professional if you have any questions. And now, Ava.
1: Hello, and a huge thank you so much to Ava for joining us on Brains. Welcome.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: I'm a writer, actress, consultant, and advocate for authentic autism, disability, and diversity representation in entertainment um, on and off screen and also on and off stage. Recently, I've written a couple of scripts for some popular children's animated series um, for channels such as PBS Kids. I'm also the autistic creative consultant for a hopefully Broadway-bound musical, How to Dance in Ohio, which is based on the award-winning HBO documentary of the same name. It follows seven autistic young adults as they come of age, forge connections, and prepare for a dance. It actually had its world premiere at Syracuse Stage last year. And um, fun fact, I was connected to Heather through RespectAbility, the disability advocacy nonprofit. Like Heather, I was a participant in their summer entertainment lab for professionals with disabilities. I think the name keeps changing every year. Um, (laughs) But my name, my year was 2020. Um, Heather's, yours was last year, correct? Yes, 2022?
1: 2022. Mm hmm.
2: And I continue my work with respectability on a lot of Hollywood projects, ensuring authentic autism representation. And the most recent and really cool one that just premiered that I can finally tell people about is called The Ghost and Molly McGee. Um, I actually started working on that one right after The Lab in 2020. And that one just recently premiered on Disney Channel. It's a Disney animated series. So there's an autistic character that is in season two, which just premiered. And another fun one is a movie, Cha Cha Real Smooth, that was actually bought um, on Apple TV Plus that Respectability and I worked on, which is a really fun movie, too. Yeah, you saw I it? loved
0: that movie. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm so glad that you worked. I, I could I stumbled across it and I was like this. Oh, my gosh. It was amazing. Anyway. Oh, that yeah. makes me so excited. Yeah,
2: It was a really fun movie to work on. Um, I wish we had more zooms with the team because the team seemed really cool. Um, but yeah, we reviewed a lot of scripts. And that's what I was just about to go into as a consultant. I work with the producers, writers, directors, and more. Um, I review scripts and discuss disability tropes sometimes as for like the ghost in Molly McGee, edit character sketches, and share my lived experience as a Chinese Jewish transracial autistic adoptee. (laughs) Um, I know that's a mouthful. And also as a side note, Heather and Sarah, feel free to cut me off if you run out of time or if you <laughs> want to get to another question um, or have something to add. Like as an actress and an autistic person, um, I prepare all my answers kind of verbatim. So that's what I do. I have a tendency to be long winded or give two backstories in relation to my one main story. <laughs> Actually, Kelly Rippa has a book. And the subtitle is Long-Winded Short Stories. And I'm like, she stole my memoir title. (laughs) Hi, Kelly, if you're listening.
1: (laughs) Well, Sarah's used to it because I, too, tell long-winded short stories. So um, I think we're in good company.
0: (laughs) And sometimes I'm like, wait, can you tell me the beginning of the story? Because I don't know where we started. (laughs) And then she has to tell the backstory. (laughs) You have a lot of amazing work that you've just listed off. I'm so excited to go watch the doc that is now going to be made into a musical. That's so cool. I'm curious, what is Autism Spectrum Disorder and how does it present for you?
2: This question seems fairly simple, but like autism, it's not tense. They often used phrase autism spectrum. Uh, autism is a developmental disability caused by differences in the brain that are not yet fully understood by scientists and the people that have autism. Some signs are that the person struggles socially, along with, as the clinical definition says, like restrictive behaviors or interests, sometimes repetitive as well, like stimming, moving your body in a certain way. Um, And a great addition to this more clinical definition is one by the Autistic Self Advocacy Network that says everyone experiences autism differently, but there are some things that autistic people have in common such as we think differently, we process our senses differently, we move differently, communicate differently, socialize differently, and we might also need help with daily living. I add, need help with some aspects of daily living that non-disabled, non-autistic people might not need help with in various times of their life, which can make us stand out. And this long explanation is to say that autism presents itself in everyone differently. And I was trying to think of another
0: word than differently, but it's
2: true. Um, there's a saying... <laughs> You meet one autistic person, you've met one autistic person.
0: We've said that on the podcast many many times because it really encapsulates any disability. Uh, You meet one person with that disability, you've met one person with that disability. Period.
2: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. As Asan, the Autistic Self Advocacy Network said, there are similarities in our traits. Our senses might be different and things like that, but how those traits appear vary from person to person and sometimes even can vary day to day for the same person depending on the situation.
0: How does autism spectrum disorder present in your life?
2: I think this touches a little bit on the second question, like how I got diagnosed. Um, But for me, it mainly is sometimes struggles with that change throughout my life, struggles with social cues and um, understanding people's behaviors. And how I often explain it is as if everyone read this social rules book, except for me but I was still expected to take the test. And I think many people can understand that because most of us have like missed a day of school and we've come back and the teacher is like, okay, well we went in for chapter 12 yesterday. So now we're on chapter 13. And you're like, but wait, I I wasn't here. Like, I don't understand. Or, you know, in, in the younger grades, you know, you come back and everyone's talking about that, like one kid that threw up in class and you weren't there and you have major FOMO and you don't understand what everyone's talking about.
1: When did you get diagnosed and how did the understanding of your diagnosis change your life and the way that you move through the world? Like a
2: lot of people, um, a lot of women on the spectrum or even with other divergencies such as ADHD. I got diagnosed when I was later, when I was 18 years old, um, in the middle of a Um It was a big curveball. And it was actually way back in 2014, a theater professor at Brown University during a summer program suggested to my mom at the end of the program that I might be on the spectrum. And this really spurred my mom to research autism and to finally bring it up to me because up until that point, Um, I think I was like a junior, like a rising senior that summer or something. Up until that point, we were struggling to um, understand each other. And my mom was struggling to understand me and also understand why, like her opinion and my opinion, why this like nice kid was struggling to make friends and and, um, connect with other people. And it just seemed like there was something that no one seemed to understand. And when, according to my mom, when he told her this and she started researching it, like women and autism, etc., it really all clicked. And she was really excited that we have like an answer. You know, she was a little bit nervous, she admits, to bring it up to me. But the two of us decided to get me officially tested. And if you want an interesting little side note that we don't have much time to go into, and I don't know too much about it and the rules. But actually, so I went to a public school and um, they at first refused to facilitate the testing. And those of you who don't know, public schools at least in America are required to evaluate students for disability. And this is the reason why I have notes in front of me because I double checked before I prepared this answer. And it's a <laughs> law, where I was like, I'm gonna like double check. It's a law called child fight, you know, law than many laws. My mom's a fighter and the school did end up paying for testing.
1: Amazing. Nice.
2: Nice mom. (laughs) Yeah. It just shows how people have such these ideas about what autism is or isn't. The child who throws his shoes across the room will probably be seen more and thought that there could be some, you know, struggles or difficulties by the teacher that's got 25 students to pay attention to, in contrast to the girl that just sits quietly, just as she told, maybe even gets straight A's like I did. And people don't think there are any problems there, even if there possibly are. Um, Which is, you know, why the school probably didn't think that I had autism. And I always say, back to my story about diagnosis, that a diagnosis isn't a cure. But it really answered a lot of questions for my mom and me. You know, we finally had a basis to go off of, some books and uh, materials that we could read. And we never know what would have happened if I got diagnosed earlier. Except that she does wish that I would have had the... um, experience to take advantage of some of the like state mandated like supports that they offer to autistic kids. But I was already 18 and also just about to go to college that was out of state. I grew up in Ohio, but I went to Santa Lawrence College in New York State. Um, and so getting diagnosed later doesn't allow you to take advantage of those like
1: state supports. Thinking about autism presenting itself in women, how is it different than what is expected?
2: The first example that I had was actually at some at an autism conference and I had a parent that um, was a parent of like an autistic child and they said to me verbatim, oh, I, you don't look autistic or I never would have thought you're autistic. And it was really kind of jarring and also kind of funny that this person wasn't an outsider to the autistic community. They were a part of it as a parent and I don't think they were autistic. so. It really goes to show you how vast the spectrum is, like one person's view of how they experience autism or they experienced autism as like a non-autistic person is vastly different. And it makes me reiterate that you've met one person, you've met one person. And other stigmas or cliches that I remind writers and creatives not to lean into are, for example, that it isn't only in boys. Most of the research was done and still focuses on how boys, and if you want to get even more like granular, how white boys present. So Hans Asperger, who people have kind of decided but not decided Anna has possible histories to Nazis because he was during that time did a lot of his research in Austria on at a like prep school for boys and there are a couple other people that found autism in various different ways as well but he kind of really wrote a lot about it about a certain sector of kids and um that's where a lot of the research was based off of so when you see like the CDC statistics they believe that it is more prevalent in boys but at the same time, they also make a note that they don't know because it does present differently in bo- in girls, sometimes non-binary people, and sometimes even regardless of gender, people of color. Sometimes also because a lot of the research is Western. And so people have touched upon how different evaluation tests were made more or less in America by the West about how people experience autism and what they expect. Um, and different cultures, first generation people or people who grew up in a whole other country could possibly have other cultures, you know, meshed in with them that, um, could have their autism present differently. I think one person said it is a little bit more of a Western thing to like, you know, the cliche that the autistic person doesn't look you in the eye, but some people say that, you know, um, I apologize if I get this wrong, because I'm not Japanese. But you know, in Japanese culture, they bow to each other. And sometimes looking like an elder or someone more superior than you in the eye, like immediately, could be a little bit aggressive or disrespectful, you know. And also, females are more known to mask, which is about kind of stifling your autistic traits, any you know body movements that could be different, um, and mimicking other people's behavior that are not autistic to try to fit in. And it's often at the detriment of the autistic person. It's very taxing, but it makes them appear, quote, from the outside, less autistic. Perhaps the reason why girls mask is because women are expected to be more social for multiple different reasons. And the you know awkward, gawky guy might get laughed at and stuff, unfortunately, but I think he's given a little bit more of the benefit of the doubt than an awkward, gawky girl. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, bullying is different in girls and boys. Rosalind Wiseman, a great author, writes about the differences and the similarities in like her book, Queen Bees and Wannabes, um, and a couple other books, you know, as I said, we're still learning a lot about autism and how it affects the brain. And all of these um, developmental disabilities they have found have similarities that on the scientific level, it's hard to piece apart. And they did multiple studies trying to figure out like where autism affects the brain and things like that. And because it's a developmental disability, as you get older, it develops with you, you know? Um, it's not just children. Kids with autism grow up to be autistic adults.
1: I think that's really fascinating because other neurodevelopmental disabilities like ADHD is the same, where women are often not diagnosed because of the masking. For me, I I totally suppress my hyperactivity and my excitement. But when I when it comes out with people I trust, it can be like overwhelming if they're like oh my goodness there's not normally this much energy and i'm like oh it's just because i'm feel safe with you mm-hmm. and so it is like that thing of the expected of who you are versus who you when you get to be yourself, it can be very different. Yeah, you touched on intersectionality, mm-hmm. and so we wanted to ask you specifically: How has that lived experience influenced your work?
2: I feel this one could be better answered when I'm in my sixties having a retrospective interview,
1: um, mm-hmm. and I'm
2: not in my sixties because when you're like just living and doing the work, you aren't always aware of how all the moving parts come together. You know, it's kind of like how people, especially when you're a child, notice that you've grown. Um, but you can't notice that you've grown. you know, because they haven't seen you in a while. But to take a stab at answering, I think my intersectionality influences my work by obviously bringing in more than just autism or even just being Chinese or an international adoptee or even just being Jewish. And I can write about any of these identities or stories, creating like myself, like one person with all of them, or a couple people with different aspects of my identity. And as I was thinking about it, I, when writing or consulting on a character very different from me, like none of those identities, I think my diverse background leads me to being a part of vastly different communities that people might not think would ever overlap, you know? And so it's kind of like how I also have like immense wanderlust and how travel opens up your perspective as well. It reminds you that there are different communities and there's more than one way of being or even thinking about your own community you know, and I can add these nuances into my work. You know, I just made up some example, like I could be writing an autistic character, but the person I'm basing it off of is someone I met in, in an adoptee group who's non autistic, but like, you know, I want the character ha- to have their humor or be from Canada, I don't know. You both are in Canada, so so I brought that up. Oh, wow. Canada. <laughs> yeah, I think being, being intersectional also makes me interested in a lot of communities that are different than mine, you know, being like, how do these communities interact? How are they similar? How are they different? And people are using a lot uh, like the term um, like AAPI, like Asian-American Pacific Islander. And people really love the term. And at the same time, they talk about how obviously like Asian-American and then Pacific Islander is so vastly different. And that sometimes, you know, when they make statistics about um, different communities, they like, they really should like piece apart that because, um, for example, actually the Asian-American um community in America has one of the biggest um like socioeconomic gaps within itself. Communities are different and similar. And so that sometimes leads me to becoming interested in different types of communities.
1: Yeah. And even culturally, culturally all of like to, to bucket everyone so many different places and countries and cultures into one bucket. Every community is so different.
0: I want to talk a little bit about representation on screen. I'd love to chat about as we see it and to hear your thoughts on that series.
2: Yeah. When Heather asked me to choose a show, I thought about this one, along with the Hulu show, Everything's Gonna Be Okay. Um, Everything's Gonna Be Okay stars autistic actress Kayla Cromer. And as we see it, Um, has three autistic actors playing autistic roles. In my opinion, as we see it, is one of the best portrayals of autism on TV, at least like American TV. Nine Story Media Group, who I've worked with, and BBC just released a new one called Kind of Spark. not sure what it's about, but I think it could be authentically cast, and it is about an autistic Girl. So it's also fascinating to see what other TV shows other cultures have and how they portray disability and autism and race because sometimes it shows their biases and sometimes it shows how they can be more or less inclusive than America mm-hmm. and how they mm-hmm. um, interact with autistic people. Uh, but back to As We See it. it is actually based on an Israeli show called On the Spectrum um, that an American producer saw and then remade it for America called As We See It. And I love that this show has three autistic characters that are all so different. There are two men and one woman, all played by autistic actors. And the logline is, Jack, Harrison, and Violet, three roommates on the autism spectrum, strive to to get and keep jobs, make friends, fall in love, and navigate the strange world of adulthood that eludes them. Um, I think it's a really good explanation of the show, and it also kind of, if you don't know anything about autism, you might wonder, well, that's like you know, every single TV show out there, guys. Like, what's the difference, <laughs> um, you know? As one person says, while the show focuses on autistic people navigating life, it also shows their parents, siblings, and Mandy, a non-autistic aide who assists the three roommates. Also having their own ups and downs, navigating their lives, either the same person or a different person, added that in many instances it's Mandy, the aide, the non-autistic person you would think who'd have it all together, since her job is to assist these people, um, who like doesn't have it all together. In the <laughs> <Yeah. episode. laughs> True story. Um, her relationships are falling apart, and you get to see that it's not just autistic people who struggle with society and relationships. It demonstrates how this group of people, how the three autistic roommates triumph and struggle in their own ways and how all the characters um, help and learn from each other. It's not just a one-way street of the non-autistic people helping the autistic people. At the same time, you get to see different types of families um, and how they interact with the world just alone and with the world with their autistic young adult child. Everyone's in their 20s in the show, the um, three people. So, like, Jack is a single father, actually played by an amazing actor, Joe Mantenga. You know me if you ever watched Criminal Minds, like me. Um, (laughs) Um, And Jack's father um, struggles to tell his son about his health. Um, Violet is an East Asian woman raised by her older brother, who really struggles to raise her on his own after their parents' death. And this gives viewers a small peek into first-generation family dynamics, how first-generation families deal or don't deal with mental health and disability. And finally, Harrison has a very typical upper class father and mother who often actually, in my opinion, like keep them at an arm's length. And this is kind of the only way I think they know how to have a relationship with someone who is so different from them, someone who doesn't quite fit into their life. um, That's gives them a little bit of pause, and they're a little bit tentative of how to interact with them. Um, Harrison's sister, later throughout the episodes, tries different tactics with her brother and reminds her parents that he's not a child, because they often do infantilize him. And these parents put a lot of pressure on Mandy, the aide, to be kind of like another parent or sibling to him, something that they feel like they don't know how or can't or don't want to give to him. But having three autistic people, in contrast... Um, to other shows, really demonstrates like the "you've met one autistic person" idea and how different people interact and how they just kind of go throughout their lives and their objectives. Violet really wants to find a boyfriend. Someone else wants a job. Someone else wants to learn how to walk to the street corner and not get lost or get overwhelmed. And how they just all kind of live together um, in harmony and sometimes not harmony because they're conflicting access needs that they have to figure out
0: hmm.
1: When I watched it, I cried every episode. So did I. A, I saw like myself in it. I saw people I know I love in it. I think one thing that is interesting that I I don't know what you think, but it felt a lot of the times a little more from the carer perspective. I always felt like it was often about the the carers wanting their whether it's siblings or children to act more normal, to mask more like not always. And part of me was like, oh, if they did another season, I'd love to be in that room and say, can we show someone encouraging them to like change their environment and not change them? So I don't know what you think about that. But that's the thing that I took away from like the piece that I wish they also had in that show.
2: I'll have to think about that. I
1: definitely remember the job aspect
2: that it is a really realistic portrayal of people getting a job. Uh, and being able to more or less do the work of the job, but struggling with like the work beyond the work, right? Like the politics of working in a job and interacting with people, how to like send that email or deal with people that are different than you and work together in a team and how sometimes jobs aren't equipped um, to, you know, they want to include people, but as many people, people with disabilities and even like people of color talk about, sure, it's great that you included us in the room, But you also have to do the work to make us feel um, like we can belong, like we can swim. You know, one person said it's not just about going to the dance. It's being asked to dance.
0: Mm, Um, Yeah, that's such a good analogy. Yeah.
2: Yeah. We often use that for the musical because it's how to dance. I
0: love it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) There's another one I heard where it's like inviting someone for dinner, but then not asking them what kind of food they like to eat.
1: Yeah, I really like that. And you're right. Like it is very, it is very, very realistic. I think I sometimes like to be, uh, uh, you want
0: to change it. (laughs) I want to change everything. You want to (laughs) make, I want to make it better.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But I think you're, you have to see both how it is, but then also like situations where like, how are we changing the world a little bit? Mm -hmm. And, um,
2: yeah, that's a question that I often ask writers when I, when I'm writing a story and I'm working with them for, like adult shows and some as young kid shows recently I've been working with young kid shows and sometimes I'm like okay so are we making life as it could be as we wish to t- teach people how to be or showing a little bit as it is and I mm-hmm. think in my like brief two seconds of being in children's TV I think they show a little bit depending on the TV show a little bit um how it could be for younger kids and then for older kids who unfortunately probably had some like ups and downs more and can understand nuances of like good versus bad, it's not just black and white.
1: Maybe we can talk about what you'd like to see represented more in TV, film and media as we're talking about like the thing I just told you what I'd like to see. see <laughs> obviously, so, but what would you like to see?
2: Yeah, um, I think Oh, also a little bit about life as it could be in life as it is sometimes. Yeah, sometimes in different TV shows, like for kids TV shows, they, um, and I totally understand why they do it. They have the kids very quickly accept like a very different person or autistic person, and there's no, or you know, because the TV shows are also really short, you gotta cut to the yeah. point. <laughs> <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> um, I mean, even for American TV shows, like, ah, oh, cut you know, for older TV shows, older people, they're like, ah, oh, cut that for time, and da-da-da-da. but at the same time, I'm like, well, I think we should give them a pause to ask a question or wonder why this person is doing this because in real life even at that age they might be a little bit you know not understand why they're not understanding but they know there's something different about this kid I think sometimes that has to be that should be shown of how to interact kindly and how the other person
1: perhaps could react to that yeah yeah I know Sarah tells me stories about my niece, your daughter, how sometimes like one day she's friends with someone and the next day they're not friends.
0: Yeah. It's just like, you didn't like my shoes or whatever. Like it's just to me as an adult, I'm like, okay, well <laughs> yeah. maybe we can get past the shoe. <laughs> or, you know? But then on the alternative, like one of her best buds is on the spectrum. I didn't know until I connected with her mom. Sometimes Charlotte would, would have said things like, oh, some of the other kids don't like to play with my friend. And I'm like, that's weird. Like you have the best time with your friend. And so when I heard that from the mom, I was like, okay, well, that's very interesting. And I'll make sure to expose my daughter to different people so she can understand that, you know, we all, and I, and we talk about, obviously I do a podcast called Brains. We talk about this (laughs) stuff all the time in our house, in our life. We talk about Auntie Heather's ADHD and how her brain's different and how we all have different brains because we're all different people. Mm -hmm. So I think yeah, I think in our TV shows for kids, we do have to show that you can ask the question. I think if you're like, don't allow your kid to be curious, then there's fear there. And then mm-hmm. that's just going to be rejection, right? Anyway, that's my little tangent on parenting, but
2: <laughs> we all need to be curious. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. How old is your niece slash daughter? She's seven. Seven, yeah. yeah. One of the things that I found really interesting in Child Psych is that we started talking about when kids start labeling other children and it's really soon. It's around five years old when they start having like their brains develop and stuff that they can remember from day to day uh, and put together different activities that children do. Um, And instead of just one day they're friends with this person the next day, they're not around that. Those ages, they start being like, well, this person knocked down my blocks like three mm-hmm. days in a row, and so and so came over and always helped me. So, so and so is good, and this person's bad. Yes. Um, and they start remembering that. Oh, yeah. But to so go back to your question about like film, TV, and media, what would I like to see represented? Well, in terms of, I had two different parts in terms of um, disability and autism, I think I would like to see more shows such as As We See It or Everything's Going to Be Okay. Um, I watch a lot of medical dramas. So maybe like one that has an autistic doctor, one that's very different from the non-authentically cast, good doctor. Um, (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Freddie Heimer does a really fascinating job playing an autistic savant doctor, but um, autistic savants are extremely rare. And I don't think that's the best representation. And I think As we see it, and a little more like everything's going to be okay, the story doesn't have to be an autism-centered story. As we see, it actually is a little bit more of an autism-centered story. Everything's going to be okay has one main character that's autistic, and then like one of her friends is too, but it's a little bit more about the whole family just kind of dealing with each other. And then actually the creator... Josh Thomas, um, I think, recently realized that he's on the spectrum as well. But when he was writing that show, he did not know. But it doesn't have to be centered around autism. And I think like people of color also reiterate this too. The character can just be Chinese or autistic, but like the main character arc isn't about that.
1: Like Heartbreak High has a character who's queer and autistic, and she's one of the characters, of many characters in that story.
2: Yeah. And about other stories that, do or do not have to do with disability. A lot of the things that I think about also are like Asian American representation and the Chinese adoptee experience. What it's like to grow up with a white family and not looking like anyone. There are so many more great AAPI stories getting written getting and shown. Like. Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, To All the Boys before I Loved Before, and my favorite movie, Crazy Rich Asians. Um, <laughs> so good. So good. I'm, yeah, I'm always like, can I get cast in Crazy Rich Asians? Um, <laughs> yes, and you
0: a should. New
2: one, right? A new one I'm really excited is called Joyride, which actually has <gasps> I can't wait. I can't wait too, to see it. An adoptee <laughs> character that goes back to China and searches for her birth family. Um, it's supposed to be a raunchy comedy. I'm really excited about it. But still, there aren't as many Asian adoptee stories out there, and I think I think I'd like to see more of them as well. Um, I'm also looking forward to American-born Chinese, which is about um, first generation. So I think you know just adding more nuances and the complexities because a lot of the adoptees are like me, and actually the um, Korean adoptees are even older because they are kind of the first wave of international Asian adoptees um, who are. Still writing and beginning to write
1: and tell their stories. I love it. This has been amazing. And I'm going to ask you now a little bit about your work as a creative consultant on how to dance in Ohio and how you have changed the production's accessible and inclusive working practices. Because when we talked before this interview, we had a chat and I was so fascinated by that part of your creative consultant work beyond the story.
2: Yeah. I work with an amazing team of writers, producers, actors, designers, and other theater professionals. We just had a, another Touch Base meeting where they brought in um, someone else that could help us with, you know, uh, anti-racist practices. She founded this interesting nonprofit called the Harriet Tubman Effect, and its the producers are really experienced producers. They started um, a new producing company called P Three. And they and the whole team is really dedicated to creating accessible and inclusive working practices. Um, even if that meant like creating new ways of doing things, going against the traditional flow of how professional theater is often created. And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to work with them. I could tell um, just that they wanted to bring in an autistic um, consultant that they were dedicated to doing the work. I started working with them about in 2021 And um, I worked closely first with the two writers crafting authentic autistic characters on stage. And as I mentioned before, they were based on real people from the HBO documentary. I think it's actually on HBO. You can watch it. Uh, And so that really helped a lot because they weren't making characters out of the blue. So they weren't leaning into any stereotypes that they knew. And two of the multiple people on the team, they might not be autistic, but they were connected to the Um, autism community, either through their family or someone they knew. um, And that also helped them understand the nuances of autism. When I work with other people about things that are based on a true story or based on a real person that they knew, um, me and respectability often have to help them kind of walk the line um, or straddle the fence about, okay, so this is this real person that you knew, and this is how they do it. This is what they say, but, when you're putting out a movie that goes out to every single person maybe that isn't the best representation maybe we should change that or um keep that person's authenticity but at the same time maybe making a little bit like what heather said like life as it could be because maybe something in the life isn't the most best representation yeah the working practices came into play when we first started casting And then getting ready for our first open rehearsal, which happened way back in October 2021. And I worked with the casting team on callbacks and just how to make inclusive casting. And, for example, you know, during callbacks, how to more ask specific questions. You know, um, it was all via Zoom. And how to ask specific questions instead of the daunting, tell us about yourself.
0: Mm. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sorry, <Oopsie.
2: laughs> these questions can trip anyone up but they can really trip up an autistic person who sometimes likes more direct questions or you you know i was like well you could get a really long answer and so to get more to what you hope to understand about them um to ask more um specific questions right like why do you think you'll be a good fit for this role tell us about your connection to the autism community, which also was a good one because we were talking about the legalese of being allowed plus not allowed how to ask someone whether they're autistic because our team was really dedicated to casting authentically. And actually our director, Sam um in multiple interviews was um, tells a story about people telling her that the show seems really great, but you might not find seven autistic people to play the roles. And she was like, well, I really hope that we do. But if we don't, then we won't do the play because um, that's you know a, an aspect that I'm really dedicated to. And it seems really small to have someone dedicated to authentic casting, but in fact, it is extremely rare to have authentic casting. Um, all seven of our autistic people, like characters are played by autistic actors. And so then also in addition, uh, once we finally started getting into the room, I worked with Becky Leifman, who is a founder of CoLab, a nonprofit theater group for people with developmental disabilities that's based in New York City. And while I'm autistic, um, and she's not autistic, but she's worked a lot with autistic and disabled people, more than me, um, and knows some really good tactics on how to create inclusive rehearsal spaces and how to work with different learning styles or even address possible hiccups like conflicting access needs. You know, Some people might want it hotter or colder in the room, different learning styles, different paces, and I think because I was diagnosed later, that was an unfortunate part of being diagnosed later. I wasn't around as many autistic people, as many like known autistic people. Looking back, I think I was like, hmm, yeah, that person in my class <laughs> was also autistic. Like, but um, like for better or for worse, I wasn't always just, I, for a short stint, I was in special education because I have a math disability. But once I started telling my mom, uh, about what we were doing in there. And she realized that instead of like having me catch up, um, I was kind of more and more falling behind the other students. She re-organized like my 504 IEP plan, Um, to have me be in the mainstream classroom, just with like a teacher's assistant that assisted me and a couple other people who had never ending questions that the teacher doesn't always have time to answer. (laughs) But that also touched upon how I leaned more on Becky to understand like a group of autistic people and what's like working with them because I didn't have as much experience around um, known autistic people. And each time we have rehearsals, we just finished actually in February, another like reiteration of the script came out, another um, reading, and things like that. I helped the team create an access needs survey that's sent out to all the cast and crew, not just the people that we think are disabled. Um, and it basically asks, what do you need to do your best work? You know, what really worked for you in rehearsals? What didn't work for you in past rehearsals? With us or without us, a lot of our team. Um, autistic or not, are real veterans. And so they know what works for them, how they learn new music, um, what things they need. And we always remind them that while we might not be able to 100% accommodate every single need, um, you know, we will do our very best. And to also feel free to continue coming to us if anything in the moment pops up during the process. And I think just being there and having me in the room really helps other autistic people know that there's someone there who understand on a different level their needs and someone that they can come to because it isn't the autistic, act- autistic actors job to educate the team about autism um or if we had diverse or disabled writers that i brought in, it's not their job to educate you know the rest of the um team that may not be part of that community you know they weren't hired to do that i was hired to do that um and so that's one of the things that actually respect really talked about the importance of a consultant, even if you do cast authentically. Or if you ask your writer or actor to do extra work, you should also pay them and credit them in relation to the extra work that they're doing.
1: If you could get all the studio heads in one room, oh my goodness, I mean, I want to do this too. What would you like to change about how we create inclusive autism representation on and off screen?
2: I think I touched upon this a little bit, but it's about listening to the autism and the disabled community, seeing what the community wants, Responds to and of course picking up their pilots, movies, and books. About one in four adults are disabled. So like even if you don't know it or if they don't know that they're disabled themselves, because disability is a very broad definition, much broader than most people think. Um, chances are there like is a disabled person on your team or even a disabled studio head in the room. And to just be aware of how I answered about different autism representation about expanding, you know, being intersectional and expanding that an autistic person can be more than one thing that it doesn't have to just be an autism story. Um, because I think sometimes when people think it's just an autism story, and this is also because then people think that it doesn't relate to that.
1: Mm-hmm. And then they might not buy it
2: or they might not think others will want to watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm that 100%, you know, of course, it's probably just money. Why, like, as we see, it was canceled. But it also possibly goes to viewers. I don't know. I think it was a really great show. And I had an inkling, I thought that it might get a second season, but I had an inkling wasn't going to be like Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> <laughs> That's still ongoing. And I think shows that have nuances and that maybe, like, just happen to have an autistic character. And maybe they talk about being autistic, you know, here and there. Um, but the overall arc is something maybe even completely different, helps people relate more. Um, and then they see that they can relate to an autistic character. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, that's great. That's fantastic. What resources would you recommend to the listeners to engage in? And maybe what helped you out when you first got diagnosed?
2: I wasn't able to go through all my books, but I have a couple different books that, um, I found and my mom got for me and some of them I still haven't read because I think sometimes when she got them for me a while ago I was more recently diagnosed and I probably like wasn't ready to like dive in and read them yet you know it's kind of one of those things that you have to kind of like be in a certain mindset um I remember she got me a couple books about autism or even about puberty actually like so this like American girl book the care and keeping of you she got me this book a really long time ago <laughs> and uh, it was on my bookshelf and I never touched it. And then, you know, one day I was just like in my room and then I found it. I started reading it, like tabulating looking, looking. Like, I think actually that was a good sign possibly that I was autistic because I really enjoyed a manual about life and what should happen <laughs> at, different, <laughs> at different parts of the life. But a couple other resources, uh, what I mentioned is called the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. And they're a nonprofit run by and for autistic people. And many of the big autism nonprofits were created by non-autistic parents of autistic children. And in my opinion, that's okay. Like they need support too. Um, And Asan understands autism on a different level. Uh, And they even talk about parenting, um, but they talk about autistic parents of autistic kids or non-autistic kids. Um, And they understand autism on a different level and talk about different needs. I often use their links, for example, you know, um, their link about the nuanced definition, that if you go into the link, you can read more about um, under each bullet point. And another like buy and run um, autistic organization, is called the Autistic Women and Non-Binary Network. Another place, actually, if you're in New York City, and you're, you're an autistic woman looking for community, there's this great organization that I touched base a couple times, but I don't live in New York, so I was never able to go to any of their events, except for one or two, um, called Felicity House, that hosts events hangouts etc they own a gorgeous brownstone um and it's specifically for autistic remaining girls um and if you go into the brownstone i took a tour and they redid this brownstone um to be uh, very sensory accommodating so of course there's no um, fluorescent lights even stuff like color schemes they worked with um, it's very calm. It's really nice. And they bring in um, because they are founded by this very large New York family. They bring in, you know, the um, New York Philharmonic, like a little small quartet to come and play, so cool. or a famous artists to teach you how to paint something, um, or just like a hangout day or an author. They're funded by a really interesting and, in my opinion, great organization called Spark for Autism. And Spark for Autism is a research organization. And I emphasize that they are not looking for a cure. Um, and like many scientists, this research organization just mainly wants to know if autism is genetic or if there are other factors that we don't know that could help us understand this amorphous disability. I know a lot of autistic people like including myself, like, well, does it matter whether it's genetic or not? Like I'm living with it. And when scientists figure something out, they're like really excited, but you're like, how does that impact my life? no, yeah, know but you know that's that's the angle that scientists they want to figure out um what's going on and i think a lot of people do have inklings that it is genetic a little bit because i cannot say because i'm adopted but some people have like when people are diagnosed, when the kids are diagnosed, later on, the doctor approaches the dad or the mom saying, Hey, I think you could be diagnosed. Or the mom figures it out or the dad figures it out
1: themselves. We have so much ADHD in our family that it would be weird if it wasn't genetic. It's our yeah. mom hasn't been undiagnosed, but I have my brother. My sister's trying to get diagnosed, not this Mommy. one, my different sister. <laughs> um, And I have cousins. So I do really like the idea of genetics. It, I think is a pretty, I think there's a lot of people who that is the kind of understanding that yes, this, these are very genetic things that people have from birth. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And another one is, I'm sure Heather will agree with me, is respectability. And they're just an all around great um, disability organization that also hosts like DEIA training and how to work and hire autistic other disabled in- employees.
0: Oh. It's wonderful.
1: Where can people find out more about you and your work? And um, if you're online anywhere, where can they follow you? Yeah,
2: um, You can find me under Ava AvaXRiggleHelped on LinkedIn. Um, if you wish, you can mention you heard me on this podcast. Also, as Heather did, you can contact RespectAbility, especially if you're connected with them already. They'll forward any relevant messages to me. I know it's not as fun as a Twitter or Instagram. I guess you could follow me on Twitter at AASHRR. But... I mainly just retweet respectability and try to tweet <laughs> at celebrities. So, if you actually want to see what I do, many people think that in order to get work, especially if you're an artist, you need a robust social media presence. Um, but I say, like, do what works for you, such as, like, look, I'm on this podcast and got all the jobs that I mentioned above without having open socials. Um, I think that's because I'm really good at following up with people and badgering them through email, reminding them that I exist. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> great tip.
1: That's perfect. That's a great way to end. It's like be who you want to be and good things will follow. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ava, for being here with us today and for being so open about um, your journey and your working practice and everything in between. And so just thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much, Heather and Sarah. Thank you.
1: It was just such a pleasure to have Ava on. I think she's doing such fabulous work, and I'm so excited that um, some of the shows that she's been working on are starting to come out and be part of the world, and I'm going to totally go get a ticket for her show when it's on in New York. I'm just so excited to see it.
0: Oh, I'd love to see it.
1: We have to make you come out there so we can see it together.
0: That would be wonderful. That would be. So we have a special guest joining us. My daughter, Charlotte, wanted to talk about how her school has some cool programs in place or events or whatever you might call it about mental health. And so these young kids in grade one are learning the importance of mental health. And I think that's pretty fantastic. Charlotte? And we have like a special day where we do stuff where like we don't really learn, but we only learn about mental health. That's all. That's learning. That's really great. Yeah, it's fantastic. What do they call the day that you guys talk about mental health and what kind of stuff do you actually talk about? Mental health day and we talk about how mental health is kind of good.
1: Do they give you tips about how to take care of your mental health and things that you can do to make yourself feel better?
0: We just have centers like we work together to make a big tower or something. Well, Charlotte, thank you so much for coming and chatting with us today. And Thank you.
1: So it's mental it's hats for mental health day.
0: Hats on for mental health,
1: and so everyone wears a hat,
0: yeah, the kids were encouraged to all wear different types of hats, and then they talk about mental health. Um, it was also cool because my sister in law is a psychologist, and she went and did a talk at my niece's class about the importance of mental health so and and my niece is in grade three, so it's like just really refreshing to see that they're starting to talk about this stuff in. Elementary school. And like when I was coming up, they did, there was no talk. And like I was lucky that I had a mom who knew what anxiety was and like made sure I got the right supports early on in life. It's really refreshing to see. Like maybe this means that there'll be some actual changes in the future for people who deal with mental illness. I just did a doc. I had a screening last night um, on a doc called Insanity, the Mental Health Crisis. And we basically, it's like we used to inter, inter, institutionalize people back in the 50s. Mm hmm. Or for a long time before that, and then it switched to be like, oh, yeah, we're not—we're going to do community-based supports, and then that never really actually came to fruition. And now it's just like either you're incarcerated or you're on the streets. So something needs to change. The government needs to change, but it's also us as humans need to advocate for that. We want people to have homes. We want there to be supports in the community before it gets to crisis point, so that people are getting the right supports when they and getting diagnosed and sorting out what's happening. And, and sometimes you don't know you have a mental illness because we don't see it. Again, this is why we do this podcast. We don't see it. We don't know that, the, oh, this is something that, oh, this is really hard. And, oh, wait, maybe there's something that I can do to resolve this in my life.
1: Yeah, there was a really sad case recently in New York, in New York subway, where a gentleman put someone in a chokehold who was having a mental health crisis and killed him. Ugh. And, you know, this conversation of, like, feeling safe or not safe, and that wasn't the case. It was so complex. And this gentleman had had ongoing issues, but no one was helping him resolve them. Exactly. And so it gets to a situation where instead of understanding what the situation is, it's resorting to restraint or violence, instead of looking at you know what's really happening. And it's a very complex subject, but when we have mental health crises and all we can do is call the police, essentially, and often they aren't equipped to handle that. And we can, we've can we seen that it often leads to people's death. That's where we know we have to make change because no one who is in a crisis, their life should not be in danger.
0: Our film's not out on streaming platforms yet, but it's called Insanity, the Mental Health Crisis. And if you go to the website insanitydoc.com you can go there and learn about the film but you can also there's like an action campaign around it and so you can go and click on action campaign and you can you can write a letter to your in this in canada you fill out the information and you can send a letter to your mlas like you put your postal code in and then you can send letter to your local representatives, so that you can be like, I'm concerned about this happening in my community. We need to make a change.
1: And you can do that anywhere, too. I mean, not through this website, but you can always reach out directly to your representatives and say, I want this to be something that's, you know, put on the dockets for you to have discussions about or for you to look at what kind of more, what what solutions that we can create for Mm this, Um, because the issues are ongoing everywhere. As funding gets cut from things, we see the impact. This is like very tangential, but um, for instance, the Ontario government cut 70% of the firefighting um, budget. And now we've had catastrophic fires in both Quebec and Ontario that have led to like Blade Runner style skies and and completely hazardous um, air quality in the States coming down from Canada and in Canada itself. And You can see the direct correlation between when you lose funding, you have greater impact. And it's not just in your community. It impacts other communities, too. And so I think that's why we have to look at, like, where is money going? Who is getting money? Who's benefiting from it? But also, how are we helping our society, our fellow people who we live side by side and we need to create and have better care For everyone, I believe we need a society that does
0: that. One of the really touching lines in the doc is that's someone's brother, that's someone's sister, that's someone's daughter, that's someone's mom, that's someone's dad. Those people have families. They are human. And we often treat them like garbage. So shifts need to happen. Yeah.
1: When this podcast comes out, um, this is a kind of a side note. I'll have just been at Tribeca. Um, It's really exciting because this is, I think, the first time we've had something at a festival together, but not together. So (laughs) I I know. um, uh,
0: (laughs) And I'm not going to get to go. It's too bad.
1: (laughs) I will have been at the premiere of the podcast. Uh, It's by James Kim. It's called You Feeling This. It's made in part with Overtones Media, which is James's company, and iHeartMedia. And it is about, it's like a mixtape of love stories and loss in Los Angeles, I had the opportunity to write and direct one of the episodes, so I'm going to be there for the world premiere on June 15th, and then we'll post our stuff when it's out. And then Sarah.
0: Yeah. I uh, cut a feature film that's had its world premiere, well, uh, as of recording this two days ago, um, at Tribeca called Hey Victor, directed by Cody Lightning, and it's um, fun, raunchy mockumentary. quite hilarious so if you want to have a fun game of counting how many f-bombs are in a film this would be the good one but don't connect it to a drinking game because you might get sick but it's very (laughs) raunchy (laughs) and it's very good it's really fun so i'm excited for the the team that got to go down and and they were there for the premiere and it looked like it was a, a lot of fun and yeah it's just such a such a thrill a little tiny edmonton film taking its way to new york yeah
1: yeah, it's always exciting to see, and and it was, it is. Literally, I think the very first time we've had something at the same festival, and it just made me made my heart warm.
0: Yeah, it is pretty special. On that note, thank you for listening to this episode of Brains. Brains is hosted and produced by Heather and Sarah Taylor, mixed and mastered by Tony Bao, and our theme song is by our little brother Depish. graphics were created by Perpetual Motion.
1: If you like what you hear, please rate and review us and tell your friends to tune in. You can reach us on Instagram or Twitter at Brains Podcast, spelled B-R-A-A-A-I-N-S, podcast. You can also go to our website, Brains Podcast, where you can contact us, subscribe, and find out a little more about who we are and what we do. Until next time, I'm your host, Heather.
0: And I'm your host, Sarah. Bye. Bye! Brains are awesome!